artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi, everyone. Today, we have neuroscientist Dr. Ryan Darcy on the show. We'll be hearing about him and from him very shortly. We're going on a fantastic voyage into the human brain. Did you see that movie from the 60s? You know, the one where Raquel Welsh and some other people got shrunk down super small and took a submarine ride into some guy's brain? Well, this is going to be a lot more educational. Just lower on the Raquel Welsh content. Why do we get obsessed with the human brain in AI? Because our AI architectures are modeled on the human brain to a large extent. Years ago, we were getting nowhere in solving hard problems like image tagging and voice recognition until we used these new things called neural networks. And just as the name implies, they're modeled on the structure of neurons, which is what the brain is made of. About a hundred billion of them hooked together with a hundred trillion connections. Each one looks like it does something simple, which is that it receives signals from some of its neighbors and either sends signals to its neighbors or it doesn't. It's a very binary sort of model, which is why they were so tempting to reproduce in computers. How each neuron decides whether or not to signal its neighbors is based, in our artificial versions, on something called an activation function that is applied to the input signals it gets. And there's a mechanism for training the neural network called backpropagation or gradient descent, and that's probably enough math terms for right now. That's just a way that you can train the network on examples of the right answers to tweak the numbers behind those individual activation functions in the directions you want. The interesting thing is that we have to train our artificial neural networks in separate learning phases. But the human brain doesn't have anything like that, at least not the same way. That's one of many gaps we may have to close if we want our computers to think more like we do, and that's a big goal in AI. All this is a long way of saying that the more we understand about the human brain, the closer we'll be able to get to general levels of intelligence in AI. Hence, we are going to talk with people who are experts on the human brain, and Ryan is one of them. You can see him in the show notes standing next to his weapon of choice, an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging machine, one of those giant donut devices that use a ridiculously powerful magnetic field to take pictures inside the human body, without all the radiation risks of x-rays, and without having to send Raquel Welsh in there with a camera. So let's get on with the interview. Okay, I'm really excited about today's guest, Dr. Ryan Darcy. He has seen naked brains in person while they were still in use. He is a neuroscientist, the co-founder, president, and chief scientific officer of Health Tech Connects, which takes advances in neuroscience and makes them useful and pushes them out for use in medicine. 
And we both met when we were both speaking at TEDx in Surrey, BC, where he told the story of Trevor Green, a Canadian soldier who was in Afghanistan, and he got an axe sunk into his head. You've heard the saying, I need such and such like I need a hole in the head. Well, that's what Trevor got. He had an axe where his brain used to be. And he was medevaced out, and doctors said to his wife, well, looks like he's going to be a vegetable. I imagine it was a more clinical term. Ryan called, emailed Trevor's wife and said, I think I can help. And if you want to know the results, well, catch Ryan's speech, because you will see Trevor on stage with him there as his co-speaker. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Tell us a little bit about your background in neuroscience, how you got into this. Thanks, Peter. Ah, for sure. I've been asked often to think back about what was your first inclination you were going to become a neuroscientist. And I think probably my first inclination was in my high school biology class uh, when I was starting to really love both a combination of biology and physics. And I had a uh, my teacher uh, noticed that, and, and uh, while other people were dissecting cow's eyeballs, uh, went out and got me anything that I wanted. And for some odd reason, I wanted a dogfish. I didn't know why. But it turns out my sole goal uh, at that time was to, was to see the dogfish's brain. Um, and that's my first memory of wanting to be a neuroscientist. I, I subsequently really fell in love with the concept of neuroscience when, you, when I read into all the amazing things that that the brain can do and what happens uh, when the brain is damaged. Uh, it's quite remarkable, the different uh, symptoms and things that can happen. So I went to school and I got uh, my undergraduate and then my neuroscience training in, in clinical neuroscience and neuroimaging. And then subsequently became very focused on the concept that I wanted this not just to be academic, but I, I really wanted to see this help people and so I got really focused into neurotechnologies and neuroimaging, which allowed us to translate the advances and the amazing knowledge in neuroscience into things that help make brains better. Wow. So you are on a mission to help us understand more about the brain and fix broken ones. What are some of the ways that are useful to measure brains that we can do something with? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. It's really fascinating to me that our technology capabilities have allowed us to peer in and watch the brain in action completely non-invasively. So with human minds and human brains, they just, it's fascinating the, the power. I mean, some people speak about this space as the final frontier, and, and often we think about your brain as your ultimate frontier, right? Uh, it's, it's complexity and the interconnected complexity of all our brains together. Uh, is amazing. So, so the fact that what we can do is we can take uh, technologies and actually look at your brain completely safely and non-invasively and watch all the activity of your brain is always something that scientifically, I think, is just a stunning advance. A lot of these technologies, they take advantage of the fact that we can use physics really largely to peer inside, even to the cellular and molecular level. So people might have heard of magnetic resonance imaging, and that largely is a non-invasive, very powerful method to look at not just the structure and the anatomy of your brain, but also to look at changes in um, your physiology or your function 
and also your chemistry. And as your brain's away at work, basically the functional unit of your brain is a neuron, and those are cells specialized to communicate using electrochemical signals. So they create brain waves. So a lot of our technologies can actually, just with sensors, listen uh, to your brain waves. Uh, your brain waves are either electrical uh, potentials or magnetic fields. And so we can, we can just use sensors to, to watch your brain in action in real time and then actually uh, start to use some complex math and physics to work out where, in fact, all that brain activity came from. Fascinating. I've got a question about brainwaves in a moment. I just want to point out the utility of this in artificial intelligence is that a lot of AI is modeled on the human brain right now. In fact, it takes its name. The neural networks take their name from the neurons of the brain. They're modeled on our idea of how neurons are put together. So if you want to build better AI, the more we understand how the human brain works, the more we might be able to do that. Ryan, you mentioned something about brainwaves there, and, and that prompts a question for me. Brainwaves, when we pick those up on our instruments, are those symptoms of what the brain is doing, or does the brain use those waves itself in some way? Does that question make sense? Is it, is it just what's thrown off by the brain, or is the brain using those waves uh, themselves? What, great question. Yeah, traditionally, we would think it was more... They were a product of the brain uh, doing its uh, calculations and processing information. There are certainly waves of activity that also uh, in different um, brain systems are responsible for trans, uh, translating information. So, so there is a bit of both, but most, most conventionally and most commonly we think of brain waves in terms of when uh, neurons are firing and communicating with one another, they create these signals and we can record that and that gives us our hidden window into their, into their activity. Mm. And in describing this, we have understanding of the brain. Uh, I hear about it at the level we've been talking about of neurons, electrical signals, chemical messengers. And then at the other end of the scale, we have the Diagnostic Standard Manual, the DSM. We understand various uh, mental abnormalities and ways of treating those through therapy. And it seems there's this huge chasm in between those things. I have this impression of uh, this vast gap that needs to be filled. What sort of models do you think might fill that gap? Is, is, is that even a, a, a reasonable thing to hope that we might be able to do. Yeah, uh, Peter, thanks for uh, flagging that. That's kind of near and dear to my heart and, and many of our hearts. The, the gap in the chasm is something that we don't every day really, I think, appreciate. Uh, and that's that uh, when you're going about your everyday life and you're aware of your brain and, and uh, neuroscience is increasingly becoming one of the sort of more popular topics, you, you hear about in the news all these advances, uh, ways to watch the brain, and they're fascinating stories. And I think it's, it's natural to assume that those advances uh, find their way in when you go to see your doctor and you're, you've got something that you're concerned about with brain. The reality, and this isn't by any stretch a uh, con controversial pardon me, uh, statement, is that when you go to see uh, a clinician, uh, your physician, or otherwise around brain health, the clinical front line of how we 
care for the brain hasn't really changed uh, that significantly since the 1980s. And that's uh, now coming up 30, 40 years of uh, a gap between the most state-of-the-art capacity that you can do in advanced research laboratories like my own and what somebody who has a concern with their brain health has access. And we've really been focused on bridging those gaps. Uh, largely, the model is one that comes out of an age-old piece of wisdom in, in medicine, which is you can't treat what you can't measure. So we've really focused on getting a better measuring stick, uh, developing actually a vital sign framework for brain function so that we can start to evaluate uh, which treatments are working, which are the most effective, uh, what's, what's bending what's bend the needle, uh, so to speak, and then find those and further advance those uh, so that they're accessible to you when you go to see somebody around your brain health. And the statistics are a little scary. Uh, brain Canada website, one in three Canadians have something that impacts their brain health uh, over the course of a lifetime. And the remaining, I always say, the remaining two-thirds are, are uh, understandably concerned about it as well. Hmm. Brain vital signs. That sounds in intriguing, particularly in the idea of getting some kind of objective measurement of brain health that you could use to assess therapeutic treatments. For instance, there are these sites that you can go to to uh, assess your mental capacity for memory. I was taking one the other day that I do periodically that shows you pictures and you click to tell it that you've seen one of the pictures before and it gives you an uh, idea of your accuracy and your speed at the end of it. But this very primitive uh, assessment based on performance and, and someone's coming up with those those questions, which is perhaps not as appealing as a, a direct measurement of some kind. What is the prospect for being able to measure things about the brain through something as objective as a thermometer to tell us how it's doing? It's, it's increasingly we're making breakthroughs in the lab so we, we started first by reverse engineering and actually asking ourselves, well, okay, let's think about heart health. And we all know about blood pressure and you have 120 over 80 measures your blood pressure. And that allows you to manage uh, with an objective measure your, your heart health. And you, you're, no one's blood pressure is exactly 120 over 80, but you start to understand when it's a little bit too high in the doctor, then uh, you can have a conversation with uh, around what you can do to manage that. And if, if you can believe it, I mean, in those cases, that created things like risk factors, right? These are huge in, in terms of prevention and the importance of prevention in medicine. Risk factors have been massive in terms of impacting our, our heart health. And we, in noticing the blind spot that we didn't have a vital sign for brain function, it calls up to imagine how much we're missing in terms of optimizing our brain health. So we actually did start by trying to reverse engineer that and say, okay, well, hang on. We've been recording brainwaves now coming up for over 100 years almost. And uh, there's a lot of science about all these brainwaves that we can uh, look at and pull down and say, what would be the valuable ones we could use to create something like a 120 over 80 for your brain? And so we were able to do that. And we were able to implement it in, in a standard medical framework that allowed us to look and show that it was quite reliable using things like AI and machine learning, uh, that we could see this reliably in individuals at, at uh, 
if I have a hundred people, I could detect this in, in uh, 99.9% of them. And we were able to then look at how do these change if something uh, is a concern with your brain. So as you get older, your cognitive processing uh, does slow. And we could show that these were sensitive to tracking that when your paper and pencil tests like the one you mentioned uh, wouldn't track those changes. Uh, we could also then address in, in issues not just uh, aging and cognition and dementia, but also importantly, things like brain injury and concussion. And we could show that our tests of does an athlete, for example, a young hockey player, have a concussion or not, um, were our objective measurements of your brain waves were much more sensitive to detecting those. And so much so that even when the best clinical tests on the world were used to make a, a decision to return an athlete to play after concussion, we were sensitive to detect uh, that there were continued deficits and impairments. Uh, so, so we've been able to demonstrate that you've got a lot more sensitivity to uh, understanding if your brain is optimized healthy place. And what that has allowed us, and this is so exciting, is we've been able to start identifying therapeutic measures that actually allow you through neuroplasticity to improve your brain and to recover if you have a brain injury. And so we've been able to utilize those and implement them in the clinic to take people who had brain conditions that they thought were chronic and change that reality for them, which is incredibly rewarding work and very, very much along the lines of the work we've done with Trevor Green. Well, and so speaking about Trevor, here is a man that had an ax in his head. Tell us what you did to improve his condition beyond those, those expectations of others. <laughs> yeah, Trevor and Debbie um, are the chief people that are responsible for improving uh, their condition. The story is amazing. Basically, when Debbie was uh, advised to put Trevor early on in, in the injury, advised to put Trevor in a care home and get on with her life, um, she, she, met, she told the clinical team that they didn't know Trevor. And Trevor uh, is very, even prior to uh, the attack, his platoon mates would say that he was the hardest working, most driven and determined and dedicated and when he realized that he had such a major brain injury, he made it a focus goal to recover his ability to walk again. Where the axe uh, had landed and struck the, the, the bulk of the injury was in our brain's motor control areas. And those motor control areas were particularly uh, responsible for his ability to move his lower legs. And so when he made a focus goal uh, to overcome that he was really making a focus goal to say i believe in neuroplasticity i believe in the concept that i can rewire my brain circuits to regain my ability and what what happened was he started working at that in a very disciplined daily way so what we did was we simply took his progress out of being an interesting story to becoming medical research and medical science and we did that by back to you can't treat what you can't measure we used in this case uh, uh, MRI and to look at the function of his brain and show that as he was rewiring different areas we could track those changes in terms of his brain reactivating uh, those areas for motor control we did that over first over a three-year study uh, every three months uh, we would meet 
And Trevor would, over that three years, increase uh, beyond what has ever been seen on the planet in terms of improved recovery. And so we would have to stop using Lyft to put him in the MRI because he could stand with Debbie's assistance. And then he started taking assisted walks and parallel bars, and he stood when they took their wedding vows. And then he started doing laps around his house. And, and all the while, we were using MRI to capture pictures of his brain. You know how they say a picture's worth uh, a thousand words? I always joke uh, a medical imaging picture, picture is worth millions of words uh, to change, change the course of things. So effectively, what we did was we, we made sure that it got into the scientific world so they knew that this sort of thing can happen, that the brain can change itself well beyond what we think and uh, challenge that convention. And I saw the results for myself when I met Trevor on the stage. So talking about measurements, I've read that volumetric scans of the brain can be used in diagnosing uh, cognitive decline. And also, like we have this analogy that if you work at a muscle, uh, you pump iron, your muscle will get bigger. We're not used to thinking of the brain as getting physically bigger. And, and yet, I also heard, and maybe it's an urban legend, but you can tell me, that in the brains of London cabbies who learnt what they call the knowledge, uh, all of the roads that uh, you used to have to know in London to get around before Google Maps came around, uh, their hippocampus got bigger. Is any of this accurate? And, and how does the brain get bigger from just thinking harder? Uh, it's all accurate, yes. And, and it's absolutely the case that uh, our brains tend to get, uh, the, the, the structure will uh, reduce in size as we age. And they did, and it is possible that um, in that particular experiment, with teaching uh, London cabbies or, or looking at their structure, their spatial component of their hippocampus in terms of navigating the streets of London demonstrated significantly larger uh, areas in their hippocampus than if you were to compare to you or I. So what we do know is that uh, overall, looking at the, the changes in volume of your brain is, is a gross measure of how your brain is doing uh, in terms of its health. Uh, that's for sure. But your brain is, is quite complex, and it's got 100 billion neurons and uh, about uh, the same number of glial cells. And those have tens of thousands of connections. And it's incredibly intricate in its organization. So, so those would represent um, very, very gross levels of, of what goes on at sort of the cellular molecular level. And that's really the pursuit of, of a lot of neuroscience in the world is to, is to connect the dots and try and say, okay, well, if that's the case, if, if brains can shrink and we, that happens with age and we lose our cognitive abilities, can we better understand what's going on there? And truthfully, in, in particular circumstances, it's very specific. I think the fundamentals are the same, but when you are looking at uh, Alzheimer's dementia, for example, you'll see these amyloid plaques and, and tau and, and these sorts of unique pathologies. And that will change with different types of diseases. So, so there's an incredible array of people across the, the planet that are actively studying these things. Wow. So if the brain naturally gets smaller, but in some circumstances, we can make it bigger through using it more, does that suggest a therapy for anti-aging strategies? 
Yeah, I think I think it. I don't know if I would say anti-aging so much as I would say that we are really understanding the untapped power of neuroplasticity more and more. And the concept of neuroplasticity neuroplasticity has been in the science and around for a long, long time, 30, 40 or more years. So we've always understood that brains learn, which is a form of neuroplasticity. Uh, But we've increasingly understood that we can utilize this as an innate power uh, to optimize our brain. And whether or not we have an injury or a disease, or we just want to optimize our attention and our information processing. And what I always think is quite interesting is that the concept of neuroplasticity has been in front of our, our nose uh, and right in front of us all along in the sense that it actually can act both um, adaptively and maladaptively. So a, an example of maladaptive neuroplasticity would be when somebody starts to have anxiety around, let's say, a fear of something. And, they, and even if they think about it, they experience the same emotions. The same would be true for chronic pain. If there's a certain stimulus that causes a pain and then someone visualizes or thinks about it and they experience that pain, that's a maladaptive neuroplasticity, neural circuits wired uh, to enhance um, that experience in a, in a negative way. But the reverse is also then true, right? You can then actually harness neuroplasticity in a positive way. And I think the gap has been we haven't really realized the, to what potential that can work for us. And it's very similar to staying fit and exercise. It, it doesn't happen easily. You have to be like very disciplined and, and work very hard at it. But what we see in clinics are there are ways to facilitate it and promote it. And that when you work in an intensive way to rewire your brain, you can. And a little at-home experiment for anyone who wants to try it, balance. So if, if you want to play with neuroplasticity in your own brain, spend a couple of days trying to improve your balance. You can do it in any safe way that you want, but what you'll find is if you haven't tried or worked on your balance in a long while, you, it'll be at a certain level. And then if you actually try and work on your balance in the space of days and hours, you will see an improvement in your balance. What you were effectively doing is rewiring brain circuits to have better balance. You were taking neuroplasticity and working uh, on it to your benefit. The same can be hold, held true for attention. So the idea that the brain's like a muscle in many ways is really true. Wow. So use it or lose it. Yep. This is another two-parter, and that was the first half. All the interviews I've done so far have covered so much ground. We could have gone on talking for a dozen hours but we might have needed a break for little things like sleep. So I'm keeping them to two-parters for now. In the next episode, Ryan and I will talk about the structure and models of the brain, brain waves, what they are, what function they serve, the nature of thought, brain-computer interfaces, and where he wants to take his research. I've got another headline to mention here, and this one concerns Moore's Law, Those of you who've read my book are no strangers to that. For anyone else, Moore's Law was coined by Gordon Moore of Intel back in the 60s or early 70s when he observed that the number of transistors on a chip was doubling about every 18 months to two years. The figures have changed from time to time. And that's 
been consistent. So we've done that many times now, and it's been one of the success stories and driving factors behind the growth of AI. But of course, it now means we're putting millions and billions of transistors on a chip, and every so often people say, that's it, we can't do any more, there are physical limits. They were saying that in the 80s. They're saying it again now, the size of features on a silicon chip are now down to seven nanometers across. A nanometer is a billionth of a meter. These features are then roughly a thousandth the diameter of a red blood cell. That's the economist's way of making this relatable. I don't know how successful that is, given that most of us don't have an intuitive idea of the size of a red blood cell. But what else are you going to use? When you get down to this scale, you start to have problems to do with quantum mechanics, electrons leaking between features. And so, of course, people are saying again, that's it, it's curtains for Moore's law. Maybe not so fast. There is a new material called amorphous boron nitride that can be deposited in thin films. That carries the promise of being able to etch features down to three nanometers across. So, once again, reports of the imminent death of Moore's law may have been greatly exaggerated. So, while you may not have seen the clock speed on your CPU chips under your desk increase much lately, the number of transistors and the number of cores that are on the CPUs in those machines has been going up and will continue to go up. Keeping to the Moore's law curve, last year Cerebrus came out with a chip that had 1.2 trillion transistors on it. That put them somewhat ahead of Moore's law, but there again, this wasn't so much a chip as it was the whole wafer. I think it was a little bit of cheating, but you know the whole thing works. It's one piece. It's about the size of a dinner plate, and it sucks down 15 kilowatts. I could heat my house with that. The cooling system for that alone is reminiscent of something that you would use in a nuclear reactor, but it works. It exists. It is powering state-of-the-art AI. So between Cerebrus and amorphous boron nitride and other possibilities for computing hardware advances such as quantum computing, optical computing, and neuromorphic chips, which emulate the function of the human neural structure that we've been talking about earlier, the more important formulation of Moore's law to us that the amount of computing power per dollar doubles every 18 months to two years is not in any danger of being superseded. As The Economist pointed out, there's an old joke in the semiconductor business that the number of people predicting the death of Moore's law doubles every two years. If you're going to be pedantic and say that it's only about number of transistors on a semiconductor chip, then maybe that's going to be true sometime, that it will come to an end. But if you look at what the most important consequences are for the human race, which is the amount of computing power that we get for a certain amount of expenditure of resources, then that is going to keep going without any foreseeable slowing down. Since human brains aren't getting any faster, despite Ryan's efforts to help fix them, that means that at one point in the future, AI will be evolving faster than we can keep up with it. It's only a question of when that will happen. My mission, and that of my colleagues, is to help people understand how to deal with that disruption. 
How do you personally plan to deal with increasing speed of disruption? Food for thought. Until next time, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.